Welcome to Executive Tools. This week, part two of two of our interview with Trevor Woods, entitled The War Room. Here we go. So this is the first war room. Basically, the people in the war room, you've got these 15 people plus people coming and going. What was the tenure of it? Six weeks, two weeks, 10 weeks? How long? It would have gone on for um, several weeks, probably close to a couple months, because but it would have changed its form. Sure. So as we got rolling with things, uh, the frequency, so maybe it wasn't all day or two or three people were in there all day and and other people would come out. It was sort of fit for purpose. And it might have spiked up again when all of a sudden right. we had some major activity to do. Okay. You mentioned that your guy who was incident management, was he kind of the war room boss and he reported to you, right? Correct. So so you were not the war room boss. No. It was I, yours. No. It was it yours. Was right. You owned it. Mine, I kicked it ran. off in the morning. I set the energy. I set the direction. I gave him a lot of clear direction on what I wanted it to be and how to work. And in fairness, he knew some of this already. So it's just like, yep, yeah, do it this way. Right. Um, you so, know, but, he's but probably go, one of, yeah. Go a level deeper though. Tell me about that first meeting in the morning. Give me an idea of, is everybody standing up? Is it two minutes for everybody to talk or is it three big issues? Or this is what happened last night. Here's what we need to accomplish today. How did you do that? Yeah. Um, some people standing, some people sitting, some people needing to type, write, um, you know, it depended on on their purpose and role and on how they were in there. I was at the front of the room and um, it was about positivity, positivity, energy, gratitude, and um, a sense of what we're up against, um, the importance of it. Right. How this was going to, it was about context, really. And delivering that context clearly, uh, not the boss yelling, you all must do this because that's berating. It was more inspirational, set the energy for the day. And actually specifically saying that to people. So we need motion. We have to move quickly. You're going to have to speak up, talk in a loud, confident voice. As I said earlier, think about what you need to say. Be very concise and choose your wording very carefully. I think I learned from you lists. Communication is what the listener does. So when you talk, it doesn't matter that it makes sense to you. Is everyone else in the room understanding? And at a time of crisis, of fast motion in a war room, clarity in the message is critically important. So those sorts of things, I would also set and reinforce the ground rules at the beginning of the day of how this is going to work. Um, you, You referenced it. Did something happen yesterday that not everyone's across or overnight? Here's the latest update. Um, here's what we think is going to happen today, but not everything, right. um, just, just the high level highlights. And there may have been instruction from me. And if it wasn't from me, it would have been from um, the director. And that was barring some reason, some compelling reason not to, we are doing X. So making a decision, of course, oh. decision, because People can say, well, we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. And then every idea dies a death of a thousand cuts. They just, you know, probably messed that explanation up. But it may have been the wrong call, but it forces thinking now to say, we're doing X. And unless a compelling reason comes up why we shouldn't, all people's minds and activities are focused on making that happen. So often that would be it. And if it wasn't in the morning, it would be at the 10 o'clock, it would be at the midday, it would be at the mid-afternoon. I may have dropped in several times. I may have stayed and observed, but I, I tried to use my judgment too. When am I useful? And when am I in the corner making people nervous that the boss is here watching and that huh. they're not as effective? When is the right time to leave and let them get on with it? And perhaps check in informally behind the scenes without entering the room as well. I'll always maintain. Were there ever in that first war room, and I want to get to the second one, and I want to understand about the morphing or the the whatever drove the second one, but did you ever have a time in the first one where you had to step in and say, no, we're not doing that? Or did you have to say to somebody in the room, yeah. no, remember, that's against the ground rules. We're not going to sit here and complain about the path we're on. If we have a compelling reason, great, but no. This is not a chance for everybody to talk and to tell us what you don't like. This is what we're doing. We're all on board. If you're not in the boat with a paddle going in the right direction, get out of the boat kind of thing. Almost every session. Okay. I was in the room. Okay. 
but to do it in a way that balanced both keeping everyone on track and not distracting and not shutting also, down communication. Correct. Because now oh, you, you come up with any, Trevor said, come up with any idea. And then he didn't like the idea and then he shoot it down. So I'm not going to speak up. You got to get that, that balance right. So it was, I'll put it this way. It's about saying that in love in, in a way that is effective to say, thank you for raising that, but let's park that for now because we need to focus on this instead or we only have so much time. So I know I said brainstorm and no idea is a bad idea. And we've got to get lots of things in flight in parallel together very quickly. I wanted things actioned, even if we didn't know that they were possible or bad ideas. I didn't have the war room decide what one thing we were going to do when everyone did it. I had them figure out how do we maximize the amount of things that we can get progressing. Oh, okay. In the same time, simultaneously, and it's a bit of a balancing act. It's like, well, if you spread yourself so thin, depending on the time of day or the, the, the what the issue was or the week or you know the week we were in, at the beginning, I wanted lots of ideas and I wanted people testing those ideas. So when I said before trying to reach out to people in the network, I was doing that. I was having people doing that, and at that point, no idea was a bad idea. Yeah, if you know the VP of Amazon, ask them what they think. Talk to IBM. Talk to these people. It's more of an organic phase, get things moving, and then we can refine and distill and say, now this is the one. And in fact, to answer your question more precisely, when we had this answer from Alibaba Cloud to say, this is it, that's when I said in the war room, okay, we're not doing these other things anymore. We're doing this one. So everyone move heaven and earth to make this thing happen. Now, having said that, there were other things as well if that solution was successful that we would now have to do, and I referenced one of them, how do we get the physical software in the physical, the software in the physical computer lab virtualized? I needed people working on that because if this silver bullet was a silver bullet, we would need that. Right. Hey, can I ask you something? I want to go back to a really geeky question, or you probably won't think it's geeky, but it's geeky to me. And that is, you talk about the computers strewn all over the campus, right? That you guys own and you're responsible for, and you have, you have, OS is on them and you've got certain software on them. I heard a story once that somebody said, if you ever want to win a bet, go to a bar near a university, find a guy who works in the IT department and say, I'll bet you $10,000. You don't know to plus or minus 10% all of the computers that you're responsible for. And you'll win the bet every time. And of course, the purpose of that sort of joke is, oh my gosh, they own it and they don't know that they have it. And how could the software get on it? And for for an operations person, for somebody who likes to get things done, the number of ideas that spiral out of my head in that moment shock me. So I say that because it's cogent relative to now, to this conversation, but I assume that was true for you guys as well? Absolutely. We have a central IT department and we're trying to bring everything into one place, but it's not done yet. And so uh, there's all those uh, ways and strays out there that we've somehow got to deal with. But that's where, you know, another principle comes in, which is how do you maximize impact? So don't try and fix everything, right? Fix foundational piece or a core piece, something that can get a, give us a beachhead that then we can build on later on, or other people that are running their own systems can get behind and will use their arms and legs to make things happen if we can right. get the nugget. We don't yeah. need to worry about the guy in geosciences. We, yeah, we, we know that we don't know what he's got over there. He's building his own little fiefdom. At some point, when seven or eight other uh, department heads or deans say, yeah, we're going to use their solution, geosciences is going to realize they're going to have to have our software. They know what their computers are, and we're going to give them our software, and they're going to have to load it. And Yeah. And I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here, but when later on, when we had our other war room running, one of the principles that quickly emerged for me and I really stuck with was if we can't control it under normal circumstances, let's not fool ourselves that we can control it in a crisis. Now that may or may not always be true, but the answer there was we have all of these people in all of these offices doing many of them doing their own things with their own technology. How do we in an orderly and quick way move from an office to a home? And my answer was, and it took a couple weeks for everyone to agree that it was the only way. Wait, wait, time out, go back. I've been thinking about the solving the problem of the, the Great Firewall of China. You're now switching to a different facet. 
You're, you're, we're in a different facet of the problem. All of this to you happens in this gigantic hairball of pandemic and war rooms. But you just switch to a completely new situation, which is where are the people? And they're no longer in an office. Now they're going to be doing this from home. Correct. So yeah. we, we need to move as many people to work from home as possible. So we didn't actually close the campus. We had essential people there, but we're trying to reduce the numbers. Government does all the rest of it. So I've jumped ahead a little bit just to highlight Please the principle. That, yeah. You know, how do we, you know, you've got 25 to 30,000 staff. Um, some people oh say, well, gosh. that's wrong. We measure staff in a full-time equivalent. So our number is less, but the number of human beings is high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you, you know, how do we get people who need a home computer set up, they need a laptop, all the rest of it? Well, logistically, it's impossible. So taking that idea to say, well, if we couldn't have controlled this under normal circumstances, and I assure you, we couldn't have, <laughs> how on earth would we do it in a crisis? Right. So my recommendation and what, what we did was let people do whatever they want, let them use their own judgment. We trust them to do the best they can to get set up at home. So people were taking office furniture, chairs, they're grabbing monitors, they're, you know, most people don't know how to plug the cables right, in. They don't. Between all the things. Now, it sounds a bit unfair for me to say, but it's true when you think about it. I remember saying in some of the executive meetings when people said, well, they don't know how to plug it in and we need IT stuff to help. I said, you know, you most of you probably had children. Most of you, you know, toddlers had that game where there's a bucket with a a top that has a triangle and a rectangle and a circle and the shapes go in. I said, the back of the computer is like that. Every cable has <laughs> its own shape. It goes in. And I said, I know it sounds childish and I know it sounds demeaning, but the fact is when they go home, the cable only goes in one hole. Right. And if it goes in more than one hole, it doesn't matter what hole it goes in. <laughs> They'll figure it out. They'll so figure it out. It's, and that happened over and over and over and over again, where people normally would say, I need help. Someone right. needs to tell somebody's me got to, to somebody I needs need to create a, a training course or a binder, and we need that online right now. And everybody has to go, and we have to keep track that every single person attended the training course, so that That's heaven right. forbid they get home and they don't know what to do, and they can't Google it, they can't go online and say, "How do I plug my AV cable back into the back yeah. of my Dell uh, 2025 laptop?" which would then come up with a YouTube video from some super smart kid going, this is how you plug your AV. Right. Yeah. And when people are forced into situations where no one will help yeah. them, it's amazing what they figure out. And you know what? That happened over and over again across the board. It happened to instructors now needing to create content online that they'd never done. It happened to everybody that had to figure out how to use Zoom when they didn't even know that it was a piece of software that did video conferencing at the time, even though we used it at the university. And of course, everyone around the world has had to do similar kinds right. of experiences. But I bring it up because it was one of those very important things as an organization that we sort of realized, yes, we can. So to shift from, we only have 10% of our uh, classes doing some kind of online to 97%, if I remember the number right. Oh it was my. high 90s. I think it was yeah. 97%. You, you can't, you can't now examine online. a cadaver online as an example. Right. But then you adjust and you yeah. figure out, well, uh, and there's various ways to adjust to that. And in, in fairness, in some of those cases, we did have some medical students showing up doing certain activities, but we often still had to figure out the ones trapped overseas. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe they look, maybe they watch over the shoulder of somebody doing it. Precisely. Find an accommodation uh, on how to do it. Yeah. You've told me this story before, and it's one of the reasons why I I, we're doing this cast. That point of, if we don't control it now, let's not get the silly idea that we're suddenly be able to tro control it when everybody, look, everybody remembers, we're, you're probably now into March, April, May, June timeframe. The whole world was going, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh. And, and I would argue we have one path that was taken by the 900 pound gorillas in, in this story of our last two years, which is government. And their answer was control. And your answer was, and by the way, that is a natural human reaction. If there is a, a, a firefighter told me this once, he says, if there's a fire in your house and you're a parent, 
If someone tells you, I've got your kid out, most parents don't believe it because of the parent's overwhelming desire in a crisis to be able to personally control the thing that is most important to them, which is the life of their child. They will not believe it. You have to drag them outside and then they see their kids and then they won't go back into the burning house. And I, when I heard that, I had known all along how often people said, just get out of the way, I'm going to do it. And then I started clicking in my head this drive we have. What does Michael Jordan want when the game is on the line? He wants the ball, okay? What does Tiger Woods want? He wants to be the guy that has to make the putt. If you ask me to make the putt, I'll make the putt. In fact, Tiger Woods once said, if you're wondering why I'm not as good in Ryder Cup competitions, which sometimes he's paired with somebody else, it's because I'm paired with somebody else and I don't get to control my destiny, right? Give me the ball. That's what they want. That's a normal human reaction. And yet, in times like this, particularly in an organization of your type, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. It may be good for life-saving situations, but influencing an organization to achieve an outcome is a very different kettle of fish. And every single time you've told me that, I say, I have to figure out how to make that as pithy as possible. But it boils down to, you know, the political thing is always never let a crisis go to waste. And that's what many governments are doing. Well, we have a chance to assert ourselves. And you literally said to yourself, we're not doing that because we ain't controlling it now. We're not going to add to our problems by trying to solve a problem and do it in a controlling way. Yep. Yeah. But there's a broader principle, I think, that sits above that, which is use it to your advantage. And sometimes the opposite is, is also true. So on the one hand, we might need to make a call that says, let's tap into that um, parent feeling about the fire that you described and say, let's unleash them and let them get on with it. And if they think they need to take their chair home, don't let worry them, about it. Let them you know, take the chair. Healing or, you know, whatever, you know, they'll bring it back. And if they don't, it's a chair. Um, there's a bigger issues at play here. And if we can't trust our employees, which, you know, maybe some of them we can't, but you can't just run an organization where you don't trust anybody. You have to, to let it go. So on the one hand, tap into that fear, maybe allow, um, allow them to get on with things and solve problems for you. But on the other hand, you might need to control it. And, and one of the other principles that in the second war room I came up with very quickly is we would do nothing in response to the pandemic that was not required by law. Or I remember regulation. this as well. And I love this. And, and the reason that was important, I'll just say the reason that was important is because I remember in my introduction it's a very fragmented university. Everyone is off as an individual or a small team or a division doing whatever they want, however they want, when they want it. And when you have a pandemic hitting and it's and there is fear and people are scared of getting sick, you have lower level managers deciding to create rules to protect people's health. Right. They're well-intentioned, but now we would have a mass chaos of uh, conflicting rules and approaches. And so we said, no. No one does any of that. You are not allowed to create a mask rule unless the government mandates masks and then we will do the masks. We're not allowed to tell people you have to, and you know, there were people were taping up furniture when it wasn't called for and, and all the rest. So the, the opposite of those ideas, let people get on with it, but don't, um, you have to force them not to do things unless control thing. by law. So, kind of so a couple of things that I remember from when you told me this story. First of all, when we describe the the uh, the university, people are thinking about a typical IT organization and the various departments. Most people are probably forgetting about the students and student housing. And what you can do to student houses. You mentioned about taking out furniture. I remember you talking about wiping things down. But I want to come back to that. Because you mentioned we could have conflicting rules. Like the geosciences could do something different than math, which could do something different than the administration building and different than something the library. And people are driven crazy by whether or not they have to play hopscotch in the library versus you don't have to mask if you go over here kind of thing. But there's another piece of that too. It's not just conflicting across various levels. There is a layer cake effect where the top guy says, we want to do masks. And the next guy feels the need to virtue signal and say, we're not only going to do masks, we're going to do double masks. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. And then exactly. and you get down to the actual in, in the it, it's a bad analogy of you get down to the municipality and the municipality says everybody just stay home. Well, the dorm manager or the building guy who is five levels down from the dean in the Department of Medicine, the building guy says, in light of all these rules, we are literally a hair's breadth away from shutting this building down. So I'm going to lock the door and the building shut down. And nobody told him he should. In fact, everyone assumed the building would stay open, but he said, look, you guys are, you're, it's increasingly becoming, you know, so, so protective of people. If I'm going to add value the way all everybody above did, I'm going to essentially, in an absurd way, eliminate the reason for all the rules. We're all going to go home kind of thing. Same thing. And I, I, I've heard stories about dorm rooms and there are stories here in the U S and I had forgotten when you'd first started telling me these stories I forgot completely about the students because I think about the organization, the professionals, the FTEs, not the actual reason for the FTEs, which is the student experience. Yeah. Well, and I do want to tell you a story about kidnapping-esque, not quite kidnapping, but, okay. we're going to come, but I think we're probably long past due to just tell the audience the transition from the IT war room, then a few weeks later into the university wide one. Um, because I think it probably sets the context for some of what we've just talked about, but also, you know, some other things to mention. And my boss, I found out once I started working there, he would come to work about 5.30 in the morning. Now, most people start around 9, maybe 8.30. Right. So he'd come right. really early. And I've always been an early riser, usually 4, 4.30 in the morning. And so I thought, I'll start going in as well early. And I just sort of come in uh, he works at a, at a cube. The, it's very open uh, environment. Even the president, vice chancellor has just works out in the open, not in an office. Um, so I'm probably 30 feet from him. I just sneak in in the morning, sit down. And if he wants to talk to me, great. But I don't want to be imposing on him. Right. Uh, and kind of like he's trying to get work done. And one of his direct reports is here asking him questions, trying to yeah. smuggle. Anyway, the point is I'm there. He comes over to me at about maybe seven in the morning and he says, um, this pandemic thing's getting a lot worse. Um, what would they be doing at Monash? And so I described the situation. I said, well, they probably pulled together a war room. And I kind of described a little bit of what we had done in, uh, in, in my area, right. but also I knew was probably happening at Monash and how it would work and who was in the room. We'd have marketing and media relations and legal and student residences and finance and IT and everybody there. So we just described all of that. And, and he said, and to be clear, um, this is a few weeks after he had called you on the Saturday yeah, night. A few, okay. a few, yeah, Good. a few weeks. I can't remember yeah. exactly now, yeah. but um, One, two, three, a, four, few, four. a few weeks, things were starting to get worse. It was looking more serious, needed a you know pretty broad um, university reaction to it. So I described the environment, what, what should happen. And he said, could you do that here? And I kind of, it caught me off guard. I thought to myself, on the one hand, yes, uh, let me in there. And on the other hand, well, I would think that probably there's more senior people that should be doing that. I don't want to overstep my boundaries. I'm new. I've been here right. maybe going on four months now. Um, so I just said, did it even yeah. occur to you to say we already have for our portion of it? Well, he was talking about what would the university as a whole do? Right. Okay. All right. Fair and, enough. and I said, basically what we would need a room. Somebody needs to run it all day. We'd have all the key areas, legal to right. media across the board. So he said, could you do that? I said, yes. He said, what would you do? So I described, well, I'd want to call a meeting for nine o'clock. I need some help. He said, you can have my executive officer. I said, um, we're going to sort of fake it until we make it um, because we don't have a lot of good incident response, emergency response, business continuity sort of planning, right? Some organizations have this all figured out. They have a room, they have backup radios, they have all these things. So I said, we're going to get a room. We're going to invite these people to it, tell them they have to come. We're going to create name tags that says finance and media relations and HR and, uh, and so on. We're going to have people come in. And I said, it's going to be very authoritarian. So we're going to have a culture problem here because everyone's used to doing whatever they want. If they do get together in a meeting and talk uh, about things, they sort of, it's superficial. We all agree to it and then leave and do whatever you want. And do whatever you want. Exactly. Not one organization. That, and that's, that's, every cool. that's every university I've ever worked at. Yes. That's right. So, and me as a new guy, so new <laughs> to the university and no one else matters. And I'm not trying to sound disparaging here. It's just an underlying cultural yeah. theme that says, 
no other university as good as us, anyone who comes from somewhere else. They're so lucky to have joined us. Um, and, you know, they will learn from us. How we, yes. Yeah. So I'm new. Uh, I've not got a lot of history there. I've come from another university, uh, which in many ways I think I would argue is better, but uh, we don't see that. And to boot, maybe, you know, I'm a foreigner as well, Canadian. Yeah, you're Canadian. Uh, you know, uh, coming in. So I'm kind of up against it a little bit to say now we've assembled this room and have to establish urgency and credibility uh, and what we're going to do as we go forward. But uh, really important here, our crisis management team at the university had started to meet in fairness uh, for a couple of weeks. But the issue here was you got a bunch of people around the university meeting, but no one's really in charge. It's somewhat pooling our ignorance, somewhat just not making decisions. It's like a committee the meeting. university normally does. It's and like so a committee meeting rather than a leadership that's what exercise. It was. And, yeah. and in fairness, what my boss was saying was, Trevor, we need someone to run to ground all the issues, figure out the viable options, and make a, ref a recommendation to the crisis team for a decision for action. And that kind of was the nub or my purpose was to get all the experts in a room, what are all the ongoing issues, run them to ground as fast as possible, and then take the recommendation to the crisis committee, which was meeting once a day or twice a day. And I remember one of the meetings we had after doing this a week or two, I had 14 papers, two or three page papers that had been written from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. when we met in that room, with that team and some of the people that worked for them outside of the room. Right. And I remember going into the boardroom, hot off the press, not everything had been printed. The first right. few minutes people were bringing in stacks of 14 copies of everything or 20 copies of everything. And um, I wasn't even quite sure all of the content and all of it. And I would say, here's the next issue. When we pass around the paper, this is the, you know, this is the recommendation. And I might throw it to the chief safety officer or to the head of HR to say, you know, some more detail about it, but it was about getting, running to ground the diverse set of issues that we have in the university, coming into what we should do and why, and then um, getting it through. Now it's funny, often is the case, the most important issues get sorted and the silly ones take up all the time. And I'm just <laughs> thinking of it now, we debated for a couple of weeks of whether or not we should give free parking to everybody at the university. What? So we're telling them all go home, but some people had to come to work. And some of the staff were saying, well, if I have to come to work, I need somewhere to park because it's not safe to take public transport. This is one of those things where do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And I think in the end, we made the right decision, but we got tied up in knots about it. We just said, fine, whatever, right? come and park for free. And we removed it. But it was a difficult thing because you shouldn't have to in one sense. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Sometimes the silly little things take up an inordinate amount of energy. And I would argue that that's part of the executive responsibility to focus on the right things. I talk about energy in the executive a lot. The inevitable outcome of energy in the executive, you say, okay, we want an energetic executive. Uh, without an energetic executive, it is as if there is a breeze blowing for a sailboat, but the sails and the rudder are not trimmed to provide any force. The, the, the executive is supposed to point the boat in a certain direction. You do that with sail trimming and you do that with the tiller, with the rudder. And you can feel it. You can feel people who are want to do good, a la your guy that came up to you with tears in your eyes. And if there is not energy in the executive, you end up with people feeling like they're not achieving and it makes them unhappy. And then bosses mistakenly believe it's their job to make their people happy rather than to help them succeed. But then the other thing that happens is suddenly the rumor gets around and good people don't want to come to work with you because they know what it's like to sit in a sailboat that doesn't go anywhere. So the second part of that is you have to have energy. You have to inject energy. You cannot be an executive by email. You cannot be an executive by Slack. You cannot even be an executive by Zoom calls. Most executives will tell you it's been driving them crazy. They can't visit customers. They can't talk to people face-to-face -face and so on. You must inject energy into conversations you're having. You don't sit back and let things happen. And the second thing you have to do is point 
the organization point that energy in a direction. The energy is not just diffuse. It is a vector. I am saying I have this much energy and it is going in this direction. We always joke, and you've heard me say this before, I'm sure, that the direction is northeast. And people always ask me, why does it have to be northeast? I said, because if you look at an XY axis, profits and revenues going up and to the right, meaning this year they're higher than last year, profits and revenues, that arrow on a compass is northeast. <laughs> That's what we mean by northeast. And it is the executive's job to point the arrow and to figure out how, how much energy you can put into it. Not you can go anywhere, not I don't know, not almost anything would be okay. You have to choose. As you said, you have to choose and you have to run the risk of being wrong. That's right. I mean, I talked earlier about um, barring some reason not to, compelling reason not to, we're going to do it creates direction, it creates, um, and we want speed. Yes. And I think one of the key things that people need to remember is you can go fast and do it right. In fact, if you harness the speed, it might even increase your chances of being right because speed forces other virtues. It forces virtues <laughs> like accuracy, agility, flexibility, a sense of importance that's given to the tasks, which will reduce errors. So speed doesn't in, you know, mean bad. Actually, speed can mean uh, better, do something now. And you know, the key, key thing is if it works, do more of it. If it doesn't, do something else. Right. Speed gives you all of those things. And that you was learn stuff. You learn stuff faster. That's right. It, it, it reminds me, it's reminiscent of the famous book by Crosby. Quality is free right? If you make it right the first time, it doesn't cost you anything. The thing that costs money is lack of quality, having to redo things, having to go too slow, having to do it over again. Yeah. Do something, do it quickly. That was what we took to that first war room we spent a lot of time talking about. Right. That is what helped the university uh, through the rest of the pandemic, right. um, through 2020 in particular. And, and what we brought to that war room is do something, do it quickly. And the key thing for us is we've talked about avoiding analysis paralysis, which is on steroids uh, in most universities. universities and with, with us. We need to get it done. We need to get it done right. We need to get it done fast. Move on to the next thing. Okay. So I want to make a clear distinction. I think I've said it a couple of times, but it's my job to help the audience with this. So in the first war room, it was you and your people trying to solve a particular subset of what you perceived was a growing problem and risk for the organization. Right. The technical problems, if we had to pick it online, what would we do? And then as the organization as a whole realized the enormous risk it was under, you ended up getting asked by your boss as a leader, but essentially in a very, to take on the tactical role of husbanding, leading, marshalling, quarterbacking this new war room, which is the entire University of Sydney war room. I assume that there were a couple of your people in that war room, right? That were part of your org. One of my directors, I, I signed as the IT rep that I would have been right. In if I wasn't um, running the war room. So in the first one, we had like 15 people. People come, people go, depends on various things and so on. And they were all your people or almost all. There may have been one or two that weren't yours, but you needed That's to right. have somebody, right? But in the second one, we're talking about a completely different situation. You are now, I want to make this point. You are no longer saying I'm on the front foot for my department. Now, the university which your boss has the authority to do, has said, Trevor, you are running the university's organization. You are no longer acting, and this is something that's so important for managers who aspire to be executives. You are no longer acting in any way in relation to your role as an IT, as CIO. You are essentially one of the leaders who is believed to have the right set of skills to do this thing, to marshal all these resources, to solve all these new problems we're facing. And you have now gone from what amounts to, I don't mean to diminish it, you are managing and or leading your department in the first war room, and it is all your people to now, you are the organization, and nobody or virtually nobody in that room works for you. Right. There's no role power. There's no, I mean, there's no forcing function, to put it mildly. Yeah. It, so to me, it's apples and oranges. That's right. Uh, completely different, though the outcomes that we needed and how it needed to work were the same. 
the ability to influence. Everyone would have done what I said because I'm the boss and I'm still relatively new and, and new bosses are always scarier. Here now, I'm just an outsider coming into the university. Everyone's used to doing whatever they want anyway. Right. Who do I think I am? In fact, several people said, who do you think you are? Yeah. Uh, being in charge of this. Several people criticized in behind the scenes that, uh, um, and, and let me be clear, it wasn't just that all of a sudden now one of their peers or um, even someone a level down is is running this. It's the endemic culture at the university where everyone is used to doing whatever they want. Yeah, the anyway. dean, the dean of all the faculty departments say, "I know that I exist within a context of a university, but I expect, in fact, I demand in terms of you, you would draw the conclusion from my behavior on a day to day, week to week, month month basis that I d- not only expect, I demand to be left alone and have my needs met." Funny, one of the deans said uh, after a few weeks, you know, things are changing when the CIO is talking about how we clean student resident rooms and I, and whether we move students into isolation <laughs> in another building. It was, it was, uh, it, it was, it was <laughs> a yeah. great conversation. Um, but it took a while for people to come to terms with it. And, you know, it, I probably didn't do it all right all the time, but no, it was but, trying but, to get hey, the balance. Let's be right. clear. Go yeah. back. Go back. You you take that for granted, but I've been living that for the last 25 years. You, you just said, very matter-of-factly, I probably didn't do it all right. And yet mm. you and I both know the story of our careers. We never do it all right. Right. But with the energy of the executive, with some judicious decision-making, with some luck, because we tend to make a lot of decisions and we know where we're going to be more lucky because luck accrues to the person taking action. Of course, you don't do it all right. The problem is for a healthy portion of people, they are so afraid of doing anything wrong, it's just better to do nothing and to wait. Essentially, if you're in an organization, when you do nothing, you are not doing nothing. Actually, you are assertively waiting. That's which right. is literally not possible to be an effective executive and to assertively wait. And I, I, you know, I learned a lot of things over and over again. And for example, you sort of have this perception that, you know, somebody's in the war room with me, they're a senior person, they've got every responsibility, they look like they've got it together. And so I'm very careful how I'm interacting right. with them. And they come to me and say, Trevor, I'm so glad you're here. I have no idea what to do. And it's sort of like I was thinking of putting them on a pedestal and they were saying, actually, I'm about to fall apart. You're holding us together. And it's sort of like, well, things are not always as they seem, which means you have to put on a brave face. And, you know, that was one of the big things that I really noticed. And I don't mean to sound critical, but there were people on that crisis committee early days that they gave an air of. I have no idea what to do. And, and, and I'm probably overstating it, but in my mind, oh, it's no, you're not overstating it. almost curling up into the fetal position. And I thought to myself, actually, what you need to do as a leader is instill confidence that it's going to be okay, that we're on this and we know what to do. And that was probably one of the most important roles I played in the war room with people is that we're moving forward. We know what to do, an air of confidence. And it absolutely was necessary when we went into the larger crisis team, you know, I told the story about throwing papers out, my arms are, you know, my, the sleeves of my arms are rolled up, my ties down, man of action here. Yeah. Sending those messages is, is really important. And I remember the vice chancellor or president at the time, you know, said, okay, it's time. We probably need to give a all staff address over Zoom. And I remember saying, you know, this has got to go really good. We've got to really pay good. attention to everything. We need you to be really well lit. We need the microphone quality to be up. We have to send the message that you are competent, professional, you know what you're doing. Undo your tie a bit. You should wear a tie because you're the vice chancellor, but undo it a little bit. Up, do up your sleeves, lean forward into the camera. Those little things might sound fringe, but when you're talking to tens of thousands of people about a major crisis, in this case, a pandemic, those little things do matter. And we wouldn't necessarily have always done those things in that way. I sure. just use that as one example. Well, you know, I, the- I, in fact, I've had that conversation with people. I say, okay, what are we trying to achieve with this address? And then therefore, what are the trappings around that, that we need to stage manage a little bit? And inevitably what we get into, oh no, that's not who I am or whatever. There is yeah. an argument about what we're trying to achieve versus 
protecting the office. Well, no, the vice chancellor only does it from his chair. And you really right. can't lean forward in his chair. It's And if you don't know, they, they uh, one guy actually said to me, the CEO's chair is kind of built like a throne because we want people to see that they're talking to a king. I said, let me tell you something. It's not the throne that makes the king. It's the king that makes the throne. And and I, I'll never forget this executive assistant who was very powerful, and, and I probably barked her a little too hard. And she said, okay. And then afterwards, she'd chew me out. But I completely agree with you, dude. And I am amazed at the number of very bright people in very senior roles who can't pull that off. And I'll tell you, I got a reputation in Washington, D.C. for saying, we're doing that over. And you know what? It ain't live. If we're going to be alive, then you're going to do it first. And I'm going to stand behind the camera. I'm going to say, that's it. And now do that again. And the second time they do that, more relaxed, totally fine. And then this guy says, "I, I want a teleprompter. I said, have you ever had a teleprompter before? No. You will not have a teleprompter because if you've never had a teleprompter, the first time you do a teleprompter, you're an idiot. I was going to say a bad word. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sleeves rolled up, tied down a little bit, leaning forward. And and by the way, I was a speechwriter for a while for governors and presidents. And I would say, I would circle this word. If there is only one word they hear in this speech, it has to be this word in this paragraph. And I had one of the people, one of the political guys say, Why? I said, you don't pay me enough to take the time to explain why that word is the most important word. And the president at the time said, you know, Robert, he's right. (laughs) So anyway, I'm with you. I want some context. So the first uh, war room lasted how long? Well, we probably fizzled out is the wrong word, but it kind of just scaled down into a supporting role um, after seven or eight weeks, I seven think. Or eight weeks. Um, okay. And then, you know, it would have, would have to some degree sort of spun back up again if something needed to be done and kind sure. of, but I think it probably evolved a little bit more into a new BAU approach because to be fair as well, and I haven't said it, it wasn't just those people in that IT war room. It was all of their other colleagues as well that came to, uh, came to the party. In fact, the guy I told you about with tears in her eyes, he wasn't, he wasn't in the war room. He was one of the staff, like but, all the but other. But he staff was feeling the effects of the. He was feeling the effects Absolutely. of the war. Room. Yeah, because we had everyone moving on this. It wasn't just you know twenty five people. Right. It was hundreds of people uh, in behind the scenes that were enabled and amassed to to yeah. respond to this and working and actioning things and thinking of things and trying things and and all the rest of it. And actually. You know, selfishly, that was great for me because it was one of those events that gave the culture a bit ah, of a shot in the arm to say, got- we can do it. And I'm reaping the benefits and from you, that yeah, day. Today, even today, two years later. I mean, right. you couldn't have asked for a better way to show who you are and to make it very clear within the first six months. After three months, they may not know you. They think you're a nice guy. They think you're young, that you enjoy engaging with people, that you're a good conversationalist, that you're pleasant and polite. You're not yep. too forceful. You're not a hardcore high D and nothing else, grumbler, gruff, so on. And then you get this crisis handed in your lap, and suddenly they realize you have the energy of an executive, and you're willing to respect people while also demanding their very best. And too many people think, if you respect someone, you can't demand no, in fact, the highest thing I could ask for them is to demand of them, them doing their best. That's the way I show them respect. Okay, so so that's the first one. The second one went on a good bit longer, right? Basically, it went on for uh, the rest of 2020. Yeah, so we're talking 10 months or nine months, yeah. Yeah, um, and, you know, it was a it was a bumpy start for a lot of reasons um, that are obvious, like it's a new novel event and what are we going to do? And the culture is not ready for it. But, you know, just what we talked about a few minutes ago, people who are my peers or my superiors or, you know, higher in the organization now in this room, in a culture where we're not used to uh, having an authoritarian figure or being driven at a certain pace in complete alignment. Right. And that was a struggle um, with some people and they, you know, I tried very clearly at the beginning and every day and throughout the day because we met 100%, you know, early in the morning to late at night. Sometimes we were on weekends 
as a group. And, you know, I remember years ago learning the forming, norming, storming of a, yeah. of a team and so on. And we kind of had to go through that. But there was a pivotal moment where I had come back from the crisis management committee meeting. And most of the people in my war room weren't there, but some of them did if they had to come in to, to speak to things. So it was very important for me to come back into my war room and say, here's what the decisions were. And we're probably a few weeks into it, uh, maybe only a couple. And there were side conversations happening. And I had been clear at the beginning, look, when there are times in the war room where we're all just going to talk in our own little groups, and then when someone needs to speak up, everyone drops what they're doing, shuts up immediately, listens, uh, and you know all the rules around being concise and being speed. One and at da, a time. Da, 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 yeah, yeah. Right? And people were talking over me. So I started talking louder. And... Um, you know, more authoritarian and, uh, or, or with more emphasis rather. And they kept talking. So I, I said, at one point I yelled, and this is kind of unlike me. And I really hesitate. Nah, it, is, it is unlike you. Yeah. But I yelled, this is my, and I said, effing room. Everyone looked at me. I said, you, and I don't remember exactly what I said after that, but it was like, guys, we need to focus here. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be a dickhead. We have to stay focused, and I'm the guy who's responsible to make that happen. I've just come back from the crisis meeting. This is pivotal and critical. We have action items to do. You have to know things that can't be communicated when some of you are talking, because in an hour, you're going to ask me what I had said, and you had missed it. Right. You have to run your teams like this, too, because it's not just this room that has to run with these rules. You need to run your teams at a certain cadence as well. It has to flow through the organization. Now, I thought after I'd done that, oh, uh -oh. what have you done, Trevor? Right. So I, I, at some point later on, I don't know if it was an hour or so later, I was out in the hallway and I saw my boss and I thought, well, bad news, best delivered. Yeah. So I said, here's, here's what I just did. And he just said, okay, and walked away. <laughs> I thought either he's okay with it or he's so bad, he's going to come yeah. back and tell me uh, to rein it in. But he was okay with it. I talked to him about it again after. He said, sometimes you got to push and this organization at this point in time, I know some of the people in the room, you've got to lay down the law. And interestingly, one of my peers who's very competent, very, uh, and very nice, I had worried what they would have thought of it. But they came to me a few days afterward and said, you're the guy we need in here right now. And that was really important for me to hear because I had worried that that comment that I had just said that I had made may have ruffled them and, and some of the right. others. Yeah. I was kind of getting validation that, you know what, we're in a crisis right now and we have to be reined in and someone has to do that. And you're that guy and you're going to have to keep using your judgment about when and how to do what. And you might not always get it right, but I'm here to tell you, I think that was right. Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you, when you were talking just now, I had this recollection, this reflection flashback to Churchill. And I've just finished reading a book called Churchill's Shadow. I really disliked it. It's basically someone saying, ah, Churchill wasn't all that big a deal. And by the way, his record on race isn't that good, because that's a popular thing to say about virtually everyone today. And yeah, he messed up Gallipoli. Clearly, these people don't understand what happened at Gallipoli. The it's a modern version. It's a version of, it's the modern sort of thing to do, which is to tear down heroes and statues and so on. And you're the guy we need in the room right here, right now. Now, most people don't know, but Churchill, right after World War II, was voted out of office. He wasn't the prime minister anymore. He came back about 10 years later. But you were the guy. And by the way, there are a lot of people who disagree with Churchill. But it goes back to... What were the results? You guys are actually in a better place than you were before. I mean, certainly there are economic headwinds coming. Will will the 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 attendance and the admissions stay where they are? Are you stealing from other Australian universities? Will the political forces of Australia say there's too much power in the University of Sydney? We're going to provide uh, some benefit to University of Sydney, but we're going to protect our own little community colleges because, by the way, I'm a, I'm a, 
a minister in parliament as well, and I have to protect my little duchy over here, and so on. And every once in a while, Churchill had to say, I want it right now. You know, action this day is one of his favorite phrases. And what I find amazing is the number of people who don't believe they could be Churchill. And I always tell them, I said, you may not get to choose to be Churchill. Your role and a crisis will come together, and you will have to be Churchill, or you will no longer have any credibility in that role. In your case, you started it before, as you say, getting on the front foot, and then your boss essentially said, we need it, and then everybody else came along afterwards, and I know some of them, and said, you absolutely must. You did what we needed you to do. And yet there's always 5% of that group that resent it, that find it vulgar, and don't understand that the people that were in the breach were necessary, as opposed to, well, I didn't like the way they did it. Yes, but you're able to say that with the job you're in now because they did it. And we don't, once we've done something, we don't really get to quibble too terribly much as long as it's ethical, it's not illegal, and so on. You don't get to quibble too much about how you get through a crisis. The key is, can you get through it? Because you're going to get bloody. There's no question about it. The question is, do you live or die? And I would imagine that if you had not had a few people come up and say to you, you were the guy, it would have felt a little lonelier. It would have, you, would have, you would have probably always had a couple of questions in the back of your mind. What are they thinking about me? Because I was asked to do something that I should not have been asked to do, but I was the right guy. I did do what I believe is the right thing. Clearly, the organization benefited. Clearly, my boss and his boss are happy with me. And yet, if nobody else had ever said to you, hey, you were the guy and you did it, that would have always lurked. I got that from some of the things I did in the army. They know I'm the guy that did the thing. And they didn't benefit from the thing I did. Tens of thousands of other people did, but they see me as the guy who did the hard thing. Yep. That's one of the things that I, I keep learning or being reminded of over and over again, that a good manager, a good leader, a good executive does what they think is right with the information they have. And it may or may not be, but listening to some people, while it's good to hear what they're saying, you're the one in the hot seat. You're the one with the information. You're the one with the experience and the context. You can't do what everyone else tells you to do. You need to do what you need to do. And I kind of think of it as be true to thyself. And you're right. There's always often doubts and they come and go in various times. It's like, Am I doing the right thing or not? Maybe I should have done that. And then it is very good to get that reinforcement or validation to move forward. And I, you know, I've got a really... Apologies if this is too much of a tangent, but I remember when I joined the University of Alberta, after a few months, I pulled together all the supervisors of every, of every layer, five layers, if I recall. And I was trying to influence the culture there. And I probably went off almost like a sermon for 20 minutes on do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat people well. And I talked about gossip and how it was a problem that shouldn't be done. And I walked out of that room and there's probably, oh, there would have been a couple, couple three dozen people in there. I walked out going, Trevor, you're a brand new executive at the university. <laughs> you've only been here a couple months. What on earth are you doing? Talking about this, like everyone's going to, you've just embarrassed yourself yeah. or whatever. But I tell you what, seven people throughout the day came and saw me and said, Trevor, thank you so much for saying that. That is the biggest problem we have here is gossip and how we treat each other. And I, at the end of the day, I felt validated that, you know what? I felt it in my bones. This is the thing I've got to address. I addressed it head on and with passion. And you know what? Maybe not all of them agree, but enough of them agree that I did the right thing. And that, you know, that's so many years ago now, but it, it stays with me most days when I have doubts that I might not be right. But if yeah. I feel strongly, do it. Take action. If it's wrong, you can adjust. Well, the, I think one of the things that contributes to that is people mistake. It's a fundamental logical fallacy that doing the right thing includes knowing what the right thing is. No, that's not true. Energy in the executive says you're required to bring energy even if you don't know whether it's north or northwest or west-northwest or two points off north. You don't. You have to choose. And sometimes you're wrong. Yep. And, that's right. And, and 
executives who are highly successful say, nope, this is what I believe and this is what I'm going to do. And actually, if you get fired or if you get passed over for the next promotion or your boss doesn't reorganize in a way that's beneficial to you and you clearly feel like you're in the out club now, you don't mind it as much because you believe you did the right thing. And you could be at peace about what you did. Now, you may you may learn a lesson. There may be politics or all kinds of other things going on. But but I, I see this to people all the time. The only thing worse than not getting an offer from a company, and, and you'll understand the analogy about hiring in a minute. The only thing worse than not getting an offer from a company for being who you are. I want you to be your best self, obviously, in an interview. There's something worse than that. And that's not getting an offer when you weren't who you are. Because you're always going to wonder, what if I'd have done what I think I is the right thing? Would I have passed the test? Because that's what an interview is. Had I been myself and trusted myself? You make up the point. To thine own self be true. If you can do that, you'll sleep better. But you're going to be wrong some of the time. And you're going to get in trouble sometimes. And every once in a while, you're going to get fired. I mean... Hey, I've been fired. You know what happened after I got fired? <laughs> I started my own company. So I couldn't agree with you more. What I didn't say very well a few minutes ago was, hey, folks, if you're listening and there's a crisis in your organization and somebody steps in and fills the breach and you find you don't agree with them on all things and you find that maybe a couple of times there's tension, but the breach is closed and the problem is solved and we're back toward where we needed to be. You need to go find that person and you need to tell them thank you. You need to tell them, I disagree with you. In fact, a very close friend of mine told me recently, a senior colleague of his had left the organization and he sent him a note, uh, a similar note that he had done to somebody else a number of years before. He says, you know what? I didn't always agree with what you did or how you did it, but I have to tell you how impressed I was with, with the results you achieved. And we're not talking about he disagreed with him because of ethics or, or legal stuff. We're just talking about operational decisions, about doing X or doing Y or doing it this way or that way. He says, I didn't always agree with you, but I'm impressed with the way you did it. And I have to tell you something, folks. Executives need that. Now, they don't demand it. They don't want it. They're not going to beg you for it if they do their in the wrong job. But if you're in an organization that has passed through a crisis, a fire, trial by fire, and you have you saw somebody do it, pat them on the back. They'll love you forever, believe me, because the vast majority of people won't do it. You, you mentioned a couple times, um, you know, uh, I think the phrase, don't waste a good crisis. And, you know, it's one of those things that uh, was a big uh, learning for me in this um, this as well, because you know, like any organization and maybe even more, we have lots of issues that this crisis could help us solve. But I remember making an argument with uh, the university executive and the, and the vice chancellor at the time saying, um, we, should, we should use this particular moment to drive through this really important change that we know we have to make. And I said, we can't waste a good crisis. And the vice chancellor interrupted me, said, oh, Trevor, I said, I'm sorry to uh, disagree with you. We have to be very clear with our staff what we are doing and the reason why, and we can't conflate things. Right. Trust is the most important thing that we have, and we don't have it as much as we need at the university, and we have to be above reproach. And that problem there needs to be solved there, and we can't just slip it in I under the guidance of the conference. The whole, and I thought, you know, that... Yeah. yeah, don't waste a good crisis, and so therefore we're gonna. It's like like legislative bills, uh, uh, appropriations bills. They just larded up with all kinds of stuff, and it's so big that nobody looks at all the pork right. stupidity and the log rolling and so on. But don't waste a good crisis has come to mean we get to do what we want because everyone's right. all a flutter about what's going on. And if you do that, the casualty of that is trust, and. What have we been saying for years about management? What's the underlying principle that, that does everything? Trust. And you mentioned doing things with love earlier. Mike will tell you that the favorite thing he loves me to talk about is the, the, what he calls the love speech. And love in the workplace is trust. It's the coin of the realm. The higher your trust score, the better your results, the better your retention, the better your interviewing, and so on, if people trust you. 
And helping people trust you is not that hard to understand. It may be difficult at times to implement, but it's not that hard to understand. You have to tell the truth. You have to do what you say you're going to do. You have to treat other people with dignity and respect. You have to believe that other people are generally true. You have to assume assume positive intent. And to be honest, in a, wor- in a world where we all have plenty to do, you have to work hard. And to be fair to people who work for you, you have to demand more than they think they're going to give. And the demand is softened, is mitigated by the fact that they trust you and they're willing to give you what, what I would call professional love, which is the willingness to risk yourself for the benefit of someone else. It's nice to hear you say that as I listen to this story, because that's not something you mentioned before, but apparently that's grown on you in the last but it was a It was a pivotal moment because it wasn't just me saying, why don't we make sure we can address this problem that everyone knows right. we have to, and here's the opportunity. That ethical, moral leadership yeah. from yep. the top about how we're going to do things, how we're going to decide, it had a major effect on the rest of the team who were also thinking the yeah, same, same thing, thing. Very, right. about various things. And it set, it reinforced what he had been doing for years around the moral yeah. compass of the organization and being above reproach and seeing us as leaders, as servants to the organization. He would sign off his email as yours. And it was, you know, it sounds like just one story, but, you know, for me, it had a big effect I saw on, reinforcing the decision-making and the actions of what we should do, and importantly, how we communicate those yes. to people and why and the distinction. But also, for me personally, having spoken up, and, and it's essentially been very yeah. nicely modest to say, yeah. you're no, wrong. no, 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 we're not going to do that. Um, yeah. And here's why. Uh, well, one thing I will say, I tell the staff here, I'm sure everybody says to themselves who listen to our podcast that I'm on, says, that guy sure can talk. And my company, my my colleagues at the company feel the same way because periodically somebody will say, well, we're going to do X. I said, okay, but it's a good point here to have everybody understand why we're doing X. This is why we're investing in this system because of this and this and this and this. And this is important for you because in the next two or three years, one of you is going to make a decision about whether or not to invest in a system. And here are the criteria by which we made this decision. You don't just choose a system. You You have to have some knowledge about what you're trying to solve and and the impact on the organization. And I do that a lot because, you know, 10 years from now, I won't be here anymore. And they have to learn how to do it because the mission of this company is to help more people become Trevor Woods, quite frankly. So Trevor, I'm, I'm going to wrap up because we've been talking for two hours now. Uh, I have been looking forward to this for several, probably I've been listen, looking forward to this for probably a year and a half. You were kind enough to give us a high level of it at the M Conference Speaker Series, as I recall, talking and, and, and telling us some really great stories, but it was only like 45 minutes or an hour. And the the room, the, the Zoom room we were in, you could have heard a pin drop, people thinking, these people who are executives thinking, I'm going to be in a war room like that sometime in the next couple of years. I better learn as much as I can from my colleagues, my peers. And I probably made the story less trenchant, less dramatic, because I kept wanting to teach the story. I wanted to teach the lesson that the story you and I had talked through and so on. But you're very gracious on an early Saturday morning. I think you're in Brisbane. Is that, are you in Brisbane? Brisbane, actually yeah. in Noosa at the moment. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Noosa. Nice beach town. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you. I think it's probably seven or eight or nine in the morning there on a Saturday. It's Friday afternoon here. I am always delighted to speak to you. I, When I think about people that I want other people to associate me with, you're one of them. And it's a privilege to have you as a client, and it's a special treat for me as a person to have you as a friend. Our best to sell and your whole family. Uh, and folks, I encourage you to write me and talk to me about what you thought of these, these multiple-part episodes. And I suspect many of you might very well become friends with Trevor, because he's a good friend to have. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, Mark, and the chance to share the story. And I know you will disagree with this, but I'm so glad I stumbled upon your podcast uh, 15, 16, I don't know how many years ago it was now. And uh, just the guidance that you have been able to give me and so many others uh, over the years 
sometimes it's just a reminder that we need to have in that moment to uh, do the right thing or the actions that we should take. I definitely don't think I would um, have the success and have been able to positively, I hope, impact people's lives like I have if um, if I didn't have uh, your guidance and not just from the podcast, but from all the conversations and sessions that we've had over the years. So I do want to thank you. Well, let let the record show that we're doing this on Zoom because Zoom makes a better experience and I am now officially red-faced. Oh, <laughs> we, uh, blue sweater, red-faced. Okay, folks, that's it. I know it was a long one and there will be no show notes for this one because it was an interview. We try to expand a little bit what we're willing to consider And when we're talking about executives, sometimes the learnings have to be teased out of it. And rather than than turning this into a dry, boring dissertation by me, I thought I'd let Trevor teach you a few things about how to be a fantastic executive during a time of crisis. I will never forget this cast, The War Room. Hope you enjoyed. See you in a couple weeks.